Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Lost in Science, your primary source of science on at least for the next half an hour, I hope. I'm just stay off the internet so that there's no other science that you're looking at. Uh, Claire, what have you got for us today? This week, I'm actually going to be speaking to a, um, a scientist. Um, she's from Museums Victoria, and she's just been on an amazing deep sea creature trip with a whole lot of other scientists looking at new and amazing creatures of the deep. And they've brought them all back to Museums Victoria and now they're like looking at what they got. They got a whole lot of um, new different species. Weird um, things, aren't they? Yeah, weird looking things. Remember Mr. Blobfish from like a couple of years ago? They got like Mr. Blobfish's like cousin. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, okay. Like cousin it of Mr. Blobfish. So yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be awesome talking to Melanie McKenzie about that. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Manisha, what have you got for us today? Um, I'm actually talking about something a little bit serious this week. Um, and actually, before we go on any further, I just wanted to let our listeners know that I will be discussing sensitive subjects, something around mental health. So um, the subject matter could be triggering, and um, I just want all of our listeners to be aware of the fact that we will be discussing this towards the end of the show. If the topic isn't something that you want to listen to, the rest of our show will be fine, as you've heard. Um, but um, I, I'll start my story with another uh, trigger warning, just so you know that it's coming up. Um, on a related note, if you ever need to reach out or seek help, uh, we here at Lost in Science encourage you to speak to someone you may feel safe with. If you need to speak to a professional, we encourage you to contact Beyond Blue at 1300 or the Lifeline at 13 Thanks a lot, Manisha. On with the show. So you hear the phrase, we know more about the... (laughs) We know more about observable space than we do about the oceans. And according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US, this is true, with 95% of our oceans still unexplored. But my guest today is helping change this. Melanie McKenzie is Collection Manager for Marine Invertebrates at Museums Victoria and is just back from a voyage into the deep, dark abyss of the ocean, looking at what lives at 4,000 metres below the surface. Melanie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. And welcome back to um, the terrestrial world. It is good to be on land. (laughs) (laughs) I've just stopped bumping into walls, so... (laughs) So tell us a bit about the Museums Victoria-led expedition. Well, it was an expedition um, that went from Tasmania, so from the top of Tasmania all the way through to the Coral Sea off Queensland. And it was we were on a ship for 31 days on wow. the RV Investigator. 
an absolutely awesome vessel, I must say. Mm. It's about nine stories high. It's huge. It's actually very stable for a ship too, which was quite good if you're doing a lot of research. Yeah, especially if, um, like me, you're prone to seasickness. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I was pretty good. I took a lot of ginger along, but I wasn't too bad, which was good. <laughs> good. Um, and we were sampling all the way along that sort of area uh, to to about 4,000 metres. Sometimes we went a little bit deeper. We did some shallower surveys as well, basically looking at the abyssal region all the way along the eastern Australian coast. So it's an area that's never been looked at before. Wow. And it's just, um, look, it was amazing. And it was led by um, chief scientist was Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria. And we had um, CSIRO and the Marine National Facility and, of course, the Marine Biodiversity Hub. Those guys were all on board as well. So, And so many awesome scientists from all around the world. It yeah. was just great. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like a real science party. Yes, it was. <laughs> but not that kind of party. It was a very dry ship, don't worry about that. It was a very hard-working party, actually. Yes, yes. A working party, yes. exactly. Um, so tell me, um, you were you were studying specifically the abyssal plains. I love that word, as yes. I mentioned to you before. Um, so what did you find down there? Well, first of all, we found that the abyssal plains were not so plain. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Right. So I think what we were expecting to see was probably a lot of nice flat areas where we could easily collect um like samples of animals and things like that. And instead, what we were mapping were these huge canyons and giant mountains and, oh, the poor, the poor scientists trying to actually land these, um, land the equipment. I mean, they were trying to avoid mountains and boulders and a lot of rough area down there. So it was really? actually just really interesting to map it as well. So previous to the RV investigator going out, you didn't know or science didn't have any no. idea what was down there? No, no, not at all. And basically, so this whole area, Area. Recently, there's been a whole lot of marine protected areas um, created, I guess, Commonwealth Marine Reserves created along that sort of part of Eastern Australia. And we don't really know what's there, but as a nation, we're responsible for what's there. So we really need to map it and tell, tell parks what's there so that they can then look after it and help preserve it for, for everyone else. And yeah, this was basically the first time we'd been down there. So. Wow. Wow. So um, some of the discoveries that you did make... Um, are they uh, new species to science? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we did find a lot of things. Um, look, we didn't know what to expect. Yeah. yeah, as I said, it was all new, all this this sort of abyssal area around Australia. So we were finding some animals that we knew, mm-hmm. many animals were, that we didn't know, and some stuff that was just plain weird looking. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, you're talking about animals that are living at these extreme pressures and in this cold, dark environment. Right. And they're yep. adapted in such different ways. A lot of them are just blobby looking. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we had things like you, you've probably heard about the faceless fish. And really what that was was this. A faceless fish. Yeah, <gasps> I know. It was just, it was the weirdest thing to see when it came up. And Could you not tell which end was its head? <laughs> Good question, actually. No, one end was tapered. I did notice that. So I was like, okay, that's the tail. That could be the tail. All right. (laughs) But it really did look like something you just wanted to draw a face on. It was just this this weird blobby grey thing that had just no features. So you sort of think of a face and you think there should be an eyes and a, a nose and a mouth and all of that. And there was just nothing there. And apparently the juveniles do actually have eyes, but they're so deeply embedded under the skin and they're just not used. So... You just can't see them. And a lot of animals down there, I mean, that's kind of what 
what's happened over time. They've, they've adapted to that area and they're in the dark. So if they don't need eyes, they don't use them. A lot of them have um, bioluminescence that they use or other, other sort of ways that they're adapted to those environments. Um, and so that's the faceless fish. Mm-hmm. Um, any any other standouts or favourites? Okay, for me, just because I study holothuroids, it was the sea cucumbers. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I was just so excited. Like I remember I got up one morning and – um, I was on the 2am to 2pm shift, so actually when I say morning, I mean really early morning, <laughs> like 1am. But I got up one morning and the guy said, oh, you have got to see the footage. Yeah. And I looked at the, the towed camera footage from the night before and basically it was just these herds of sea cucumbers. Herds? All, herds of gorgeous little sea piggy looking sea cucumbers all facing into the current and feeding. And that oh, was just so fantastic for wow. me to see because I, I work with museum collections and I don't often get to see these animals in their natural environments and it was just fantastic to see. I also saw this um, this gorgeous one that was swimming um, and oh, I saw this sea cucumber that came up and I, I've seen similar ones in um, ROV footage and that before but it has this fin on its back that makes it look like a shark. I mean, that's pretty cool. Shark that sea is, cucumber. That is very cool. <laughs> that is very cool. Now now um, my image of the abyssal plains off the coast of Australia is of the majestic herds of oh, sea cucumbers. The majestic sea cucumbers. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Do you have a name? Is, is there a collective noun name for sea cucumbers? I'm going to go with herd. Yeah. <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> we could say a pod, but I don't think that works. No, <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. You're listening to Lost in Science, airing across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today, we're talking to Melanie McKenzie from Museum Victoria about exploring the final frontier beneath the ocean. Um, so you mentioned the toad camera. That's is so. That's um, something that part of the equipment that you use to get down to four thousand meters. Can you talk us through like how you know how the equipment works? How do they? How does the how did scientists get it down there? What sort of things do you use to collect the samples? Yeah, yeah. So there's a we had a lot of different different kinds of deployments. So um, what we would do first would be to swath basically you're pinging sonar off off the um off the ocean floor to try and map it first and once you've mapped what it looks like down there then you can kind of pick the best area to put your equipment down and then if it's rocky looking you probably wouldn't put the camera down because you don't want to smash it or anything like that so you have to sort of pick the equipment based on what the terrain looks like uh and then you're putting down scientific sampling nets so sort of like little mini fishing nets in a way and you have sleds um, that catch much smaller animals they get funneled into these cot ends um, wow. so you're so talking are they sort tiny... of like um, electronic um, or sleds that you can direct with a, with a camera or yeah you can't direct them with the camera so much you have to um, <laughs> I think sometimes you have to use a bit of trigonometry as well which I was quite surprised about that's very but, cool yes yeah, so you use you use that original mapping to um, to know where to put them um, and then yeah you are you're using uh, you know gears and winches and computerized programs but it does actually take a lot of skill on the part of um, you know the chief scientists and and technicians putting them down as well 
Um, and we, as the um, sort of sorting team, I guess, the, um, the scientists up on board, we'll watch cameras if there's cameras down, but otherwise, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep going with our other work until we know that it's up near the top. So once it gets up close to deck... Um, we all sort of get ready, get very prepared. We had the ice machines going. Ah, okay, uh, yeah. so prepared means ice machines, you're all geared up. Yes, geared up. We had to have, you know, the safety boots, your safety gear, your helmets, your life jackets, all that kind of thing. Um, and we wait out on deck with, with big buckets or Nelly bins or um, whatever we think is going to come up, you know, what, what kind yeah. of collecting equipment we need. And there would be um, members of um, all sorts of teams there. So you'd have um, marine invertebrates and vertebrates and sort of... Yeah, so basically the, the main two teams on board really, um, other than, of course, all the technicians and that were the, um, the fishos, <laughs> your yep. theologists, um, and then we had the marine invertebrate team. They're the, the two main ones. We were lucky enough to, to actually get a whale skull and some whaleier bones and a, a manta ray in there. So we did have some uh, some other vertebrates as well, but um, but in general you've got yeah the fish team and the and the marine invertebrate team and of course the marine invertebrate team you know you've got so many different phyla that you're trying to cover there so that's the bigger team um, and yeah so we'd wait and see what came up and um, and the crew would to, would help to actually retrieve the equipment. And then when it was up on deck and we were cleared to go out and collect it, we'd take it back in buckets or bins or whatever into the lab, put it straight on ice and then start sorting it into different groups. So you're just sort of starting off with a like with like. So you're putting all the stuff that looks wormy together, all the stuff that looks fishy together, all the stuff that looks sea cucumbery together, and then you're sorting more and more from that. So that's basically you're just starting as this big... You know, imagine you've got mixed lollies, <laughs> you're just sorting them out. And then, then the science comes into it a bit more after that. And you start specifically looking down microscopes and trying to ID these animals a bit more. And one of the things is because you're bringing them from so um, so far down and they're coming through really cold, they start off at about one degree, like they're getting these Antarctic waters down in the Imbus. And they're coming up through warmer waters. So mm-hmm. you really have to um, try and keep them on ice and then preserve them as quickly as possible as well. Right. So we had to pickle them in ethanol or formalin or whatever we were using as well or put them in the freezer. So, yeah, so it's a it's a busy job and it's a quick quick job that takes a long time, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then afterwards, if, if we do have downtime, then you're doing a lot more sorting. So for smaller animals, so you've got tiny crustaceans, the things that whales eat and, and little worms and things like that, you might be sorting for hours under a microscope to try and get those guys ID'd as well. So... And when you bring something up like um, the faceless fish, for example, that's got a lot of coverage, do you know that this is, it's like, oh, this is going to be big? You don't necessarily know because different people, um, you know, are into different things as yeah. well. I mean, I, I love my sea cucumbers, but then we had a lot of um, polychaete people, worm people on board. Mm. And oh my goodness, when the whale skull came up, you should have seen them go. They're like, zombie worms! Yeah! <laughs> so these, um, <laughs> these zombie worms bore into, um, are known to bore into bones. So if you get something like a skull down there, you might get one of these zombie worms that basically doesn't really have a head or anything. It kind of just digests things through its body. <laughs> yeah, so kind of cool. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have the pycnogonid experts. So when when sea spiders come up, he gets really excited. Yeah. And he's like, oh, my God, these guys have no eyes. How weird. <laughs> and So you'll have different people excited about different things. But the good thing is that as scientists, like, 
we just really get into it and you really want to learn other things. So if someone's excited, then you look. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It mm. sounds like it's a great sharing of passion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there also seems like there's um, quite a tendency to get excited over things that don't have eyes or faces. <laughs> well, I guess that is. That's, that's kind of weird when you say that. But I guess what it is is because it's, it's, because it's from the abyss. So we're seeing animals that are very different to what we see in the intertidal zone or something because, you know, they don't need the normal things yeah. that we need and often they're quite gelatinous they, they don't really have they've got to maintain that um that you know neutral buoyancy really at those great pressures and they've got to not be crushed so of course they've adapted to that often they're just really weird and squishy like yeah. you know there's some odd stuff down there yeah and you get those weird colors too you get those the bright um you get a lot of things with no colour whatsoever and then you'll get something really bright red because, of course, red is black in the deep sea. So, um, And then you'll get other things with cute little fishing rods on their heads and, you know, yeah. bioluminescent things, so glow-in-the-dark stars kind of thing and, yeah, so some odd things. What there. a weird world. Yep. <laughs> um, what a weird world you've been living so close to for the last <laughs> month. <laughs> um, so now that you're back, when when will the public get a chance to sort of see some of these amazing creatures? Well, the very good news is, is that we already have a pop-up. Oh, so fantastic. The faceless fish is actually already on display. It's, right. um, it's just a pop-up display, so try and get to the museum as soon as you can. It's right. at um, Melbourne Museum in Carlton Gardens. Uh, there's a pop-up of, of the faceless fish. And I think we've also got one of those little cups. So um, if anyone watched any of the, the news footage, we did send down some polystyrene cups just to show how pressure can change at that at that depth. So you'll see how tiny these cups can shrink, uh, which is a good way to sort of explain it. We were talking to school kids and that while we were on board. So, Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So oh, please excellent. sit down and have a look. And then we'll probably do a bit more of it later in the year as well. Great. So for our Victorian listeners, head to Melbourne, to the Melbourne, um, to the Melbourne Museum to check that out. That's awesome. I will definitely be going along. Um, well, Mel, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing um, these previously untold stories of the deep. Um, yeah, I can't wait to check out these creatures um, at the museum soon. Great. <laughs> Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Um, the topic of my story today may not be new to some of our listeners, but I wanted to address it in our show. Uh, today, I want to talk about some of the, some psychological studies on mental health um, of farmers. And so before I begin, I just want to warn our listeners again um, that the content of this segment may be triggering or unsettling for you to hear, and you may not want to continue listening. If you're experiencing tough emotions or you need someone to talk to, please reach out and talk to someone. You can contact Beyond Blue, and their number is 1300-224636, or you can contact Lifeline um, at 1311-14. Um, so now I'm going to begin. Um, there's a high rate of depression and suicide among farmers and those that work in the agricultural industry. Much of this is put down to high work demands, low rewards, and a lack of control of one's, one's experiences in their daily lives when they're trying to provide for themselves and their families. In 2002, Andrew Page and Lynn Farger from the University of Sydney 
published a study describing the rate of suicide among Australian farmers from 1988 to 1997. Their main conclusion was that over this 10-year period, 921 farm suicides were identified at a rate of one male farmer per, uh, for every four days. And the rate of um, suicide among farmers was much higher than the, the national rates amongst um, males in the same age groups and also in the wider rural community or population. In 2013, Alison Milner and her colleagues from the University of Melbourne published a systematic review and a meta-analysis of suicide rates by occup- occupation. They found that the rate of suicide among our agricultural workers was 1.6 times higher than the average, emplo- uh, average of all employed people. And this closely mirrored a report that came out of Queensland in 2010 that revealed that Queensland farmers were committing suicide at a rate of two times higher um, than the rate among the general population. And now these rates are a bit outdated, and I don't, and the reports don't actually truly go into the factors that cause the suicide. And some of the um, limitations to the study are that they, first of all, lump farmers into these big homo- homo- homogenous groups. Mm-hmm. But they also, um, as I mentioned with the stats, I said that they talk about one male farmer um, every four days because. Some of the studies um, have hard and fast rules about what's a farmer and who's an agricultural worker. About, um, uh, and it doesn't take into account people like farmhands or people that aren't receiving their primary income from farms or agricultural lands, and it doesn't take into account families of farmers. So um, these, these numbers aren't exactly um, – they may not be exactly right, and they may be outdated at this stage. Um, so one of the things that I realized was that I wasn't finding any studies that show any sort of relationship to maybe a causation or a, there were a lot of these correlative studies. And I, the study I'm about to present is also quite correlative, but I thought it was something interesting. Um, there weren't any studies that are on a smaller scale that identify the rates of depression amongst farmers and reveal the cause of the depression. But one article that I did come across was... Um, about the exposure of agricultural workers to chemicals that are alter their brain function. And these chemicals are the pesticides that they use. So in 2014, John Beard and colleagues from different universities in the United States published a study in the Environmental Health Perspectives that showed that farmers that used fumigates and organochlorine um, insecticides had a, had a higher rate of depression than farmers who did not use these chemicals. In their study, they analyzed data from 21,208 participants that used one of 50 specific pesticides that they focused their study on. They grouped these 50 specific pesticides into 10 pesticide classes. They spoke with the participants at enrollment between 1993 and 1997, and then again um, as a follow-up between 2005 and 2010 to survey the participants on whether they were diagnosed with depression by a physician. The participants were uh, divided into groups. One of the groups was um, a group that had reported a previous diagnosis of depression at the enrollment, but not the follow-up, and this was about 28% of the participants. 32% of the participants reported um, depression at both the enrollment and at the follow-up, and then 40% reported uh, depression at the diagnosis, but not at the follow-up. And the authors concluded that from this study, those participants that were using Fumigants and organochloride insecticides continuously over the study period had a higher rate of depression than the rest of the participants. 
They also found that farmers with the highest number of lifetime exposure days to pesticides were 50% more likely to later have a, have a depression diagnosis. That's the, really high. It's a very high rate. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the authors actually suggested that um, these pesticides are altering the brain function um, of these of the individuals yeah. using these uh, chemicals, and they refer to studies where these pesticides have been shown to um, harm and destroy brain tissues and receptors in rats. Right. So, uh, yeah, it, there's not any direct studies done on humans or in. Yeah. But like, if you want to um, draw conclusions from other mammal species, so on top of the stress of the job, um, as I mentioned, the um, farmers are often exposed to uh, really poor working conditions or the lack of control and high work demands. Um, there may be this occupational hazard of using these pesticides. Um, I think that a lot of these studies, for me at least, the, the results seem a bit preliminary. And so it seems foundational. It seems like the starting point of mm. where these studies could be going. Mm. Um, but I'm sure that there are more studies being done, probably even at this very moment. So this would be a good space to watch to see how things are changing. Hopefully um, some studies will uh, strive to study the full impact of pesticides or even work towards just developing less harmful pesticides. Or even just having this discussion and bringing these issues into the open will provide a safe space for people to discuss their struggles. Mm. Um, in either case, I feel that the rate of suicide, as you mentioned, Claire, is much too high. Suicide and depression is much, much too high. And more opportunities for us to discuss these circumstances and open up the conversation will be will be for the better. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to end by, again, reminding our listeners that we're, we here at Lost in Science encourage you to contact someone if you're struggling and if you need to speak to someone. We encourage you to contact Beyond Blue, and their number is 1300-224636 or Lifeline at 131114. Okay, and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Now, if you are in Melbourne or you're able to get to Melbourne, remember that you can see the Faceless Fish and some other findings from the uh, Voyage to the Abyss at Melbourne Museum. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded in Melbourne at the studios of 3CR, and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We'd love you to get in touch with us. Remember that you can always email us your questions or comments on lostinsci, L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook, where we are Lost in Science on 3CR, or you can find us on Twitter, where I believe our handle is Lost in Science one You can also find all our uh, podcasts on your latest favorite podcasting app. Uh, If you listen to us via iTunes, please get on and give us a good rating and review. And you can also find us on the 3CR website. That's 3cr.org.au. Or you can find us here on this radio station same time next week, where once again, Stu, Claire, Manisha and Chris will get Lost in Science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.